Welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews, and today I'm bringing you a great conversation I had with Catherine Green. Catherine is an educator at Torrance Valley Christian School in South Australia, and today we're talking about how we can best love and nurture our students. In this discussion, Catherine shows a real wealth of knowledge that she's accumulated throughout her various roles. But I tell you, it's not just her knowledge that impressed me. It was her love and care for her students that really stood out. This discussion is based around a book review in the upcoming edition of the Christian Teachers Journal. It's based on Bernie Godwin's book, Loving Our Students on Purpose. This book was released relatively recently, say 2022, and it offers principles and strategies to build a culture of joy, responsibility and connection in our schools. Now I've got a link to that book in the show notes, so if you like what we're saying here, why don't you go and check that out. As always, know that before Catherine and I hit record, we prayed for you that whatever your role in Christian education, God would use you to bring students to feel loved and connected within their learning community. And if you enjoy this episode, subscribe to the podcast and make sure you share it around too. I'm also always talking about this sort of stuff on Twitter and LinkedIn. I've got the links to those in the show notes. Why don't you connect with me there as well? Anyway, without further ado, enjoy the discussion. Well, Catherine Green, welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So we are in the Easter holidays, at least they're the Easter holidays down in here in Tasmania. Um, Am I right in thinking you are starting your holidays now or have you finished them? How does it transpose over to Adelaide Standard Time? Uh, Absolutely. Just today is our first day of holidays. So um, just having that feeling of freedom today. Well, congratulations on coming on a podcast because that's not necessarily a stress-free thing to do on the no. first day of your holidays, so I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, are you? Do you have plans? Have you got any grand vision for how this holiday is going to work for you? Uh, we're about to do a road trip to Ballarat and Melbourne tomorrow, so taking the family to see some uh, good family friends and um I've got a, a teenage daughter who wants to buy a drink from Starbucks and a teenage son who wants to visit the NBA store in Melbourne. So that's the grand vision for the next uh, seven days. <laughs> wow. Well, look, I hope that goes well for you. So uh, when you're when you're not at school, you're ferrying people around to Starbucks and NBA stores. <laughs> tell, us, tell us a little bit about what you are doing when you're at school. Um, well, I am a teacher. Um, I work in a, a school that is is for students from reception to year 12. So reception in in South Australia is like the first year of school um, when students are turning mm-hmm. five. Um, but my teaching is in the senior school part of the school. So I teach uh, year 10, 11 and 12 essential English. And uh, so that tends to attract students that um, maybe struggle with learning um, in all forms or particularly uh, struggle with learning English and um, so I spend a lot of time um, yeah working with students that find learning difficult um, but I really love it and uh, I also have a a role in the school this year as the teaching and learning coordinator um, for the whole school Um, so I'm only um, just a term into that role um, developing professional learning and um, at our curriculum pathways and overseeing a whole range of different projects there, which I'm really enjoying. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on the promotion then, Catherine. That sounds like that's a, that's a big hat to be wearing. Thank you. I'm always interested when it comes to educators 
there are so many different paths into this profession. Yes. How did you find yourself coming into education? Well, um, I suppose when I was at school, I, I wanted to be a French teacher uh, because I French was one of those subjects I was really good at when I was at school. Uh, and I suppose I, I'd always had this idea that I wanted to be a teacher. I uh, wasn't really keen on being a high school teacher straight away. Um, and um, I suppose ended up uh, through a chain of different um steps along the way ending up doing a psychology degree Um, and at the end of that psychology degree had a choice as to whether I would continue on and do the two-year master's uh, to become a psychologist uh, or whether I do one year as a graduate diploma of education to become a teacher Um, and timing-wise it made a lot more sense for me to do one year of study to have a qualification that would um, see me in full-time work because I was getting married and um, it sort of I sort of felt that that was also um, a qualification that would travel well depending on whatever my husband ended up doing Um, and so uh, I, I sort of came into teaching Uh, I think I was 23 when I did my teaching qualification. So by that stage, I was brave enough to tackle um, secondary students. Uh, And then I I remember fully expecting, you know, this perfect job to drop in my lap um, and it didn't. And I went back to working at Spotlight measuring people's curtain fabrics and all of those sorts of things, wondering what on earth was going on. Um, And around about this time, we're talking mid-90s now, um, vocational education in schools was just taking off again. Uh, And I applied for a job where they wanted somebody who could work in an education setting as well as had experience in retail and hospitality, which is exactly what I did. And so my first teaching job was actually training uh, high school students in a certificate in uh, retail and coordinating a whole lot of other vet programs, which um, really just opened up um, a really big world to me that I would never have considered uh, when I was at school because there wasn't such a thing when I was at school. And uh, it also, I think, really connected for me beautifully you know, my experience of working, you know, from being a teenager through my university years and also then uh, the teaching qualification that I had. So uh, through that, I then ended up for about 10 years after I finished my teaching, not actually working in a school, uh, but running programs for lots of schools. And so I ran vet programs for about three years, travelled overseas for a short time, then came back and worked for an employment agency where in that employment agency we were funded by the government to uh, work with students who are at risk of leaving school early. So again, that sort of started to shape uh, where a lot of my skill set was. And uh, then through that, I got picked up, uh, picked up, headhunter, I don't know what the word is, <laughs> offered a job by a, um, a local Catholic Uh, school uh, and they took me on and that was sort of my first actual teaching job. So it was sort of like 10 years after I'd uh, qualified as a teacher that I um, was actually in the classroom teaching um, English and drama and and those sorts of things. Um, And then over time, sort of the vocational education and careers stuff that I had did, had did, had done, <laughs> uh, it it all works for me. It's it's the first day of holidays. So You're allowed to unwind English a little teacher. bit. Uh, no. uh, <laughs> so all of those things again. It was sort of this wonderful uh, way that God sort of 
was weaving all of my experiences together. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I've sort of taught, um, I think I worked out this must be my 28th year of being a teacher. Um, and I've sort of, yeah, just started to move away from the, that direct vet and careers um, world um, and also maintained the teaching of English, which I really love. So. That's amazing, isn't it, how often teachers will talk about the fact that they went through life, they did a bunch of different things, had a grab bag of very eclectic skills, and then surely enough, God presents them this opportunity where the, the very skills you have accumulated, quite rare and strange, yeah. are exactly what you need to do yeah. that particular job. That's a story I hear over and over again, yeah. and I think it's just a testament to God's faithfulness, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. At, at the time, you can be scratching your head. <laughs> You know, okay, oh, well, I guess I'll go back to Spotlight then. Fair <laughs> yeah. enough. Well, I don't know why I did that teaching no, degree. No, no. And then it and it all works so perfectly. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really encouraging story, yeah. Catherine. And I'm sure it will be helpful for those out there who are actually in the process of getting their first degree or yeah. um, trying to find a, a place that they're happy to work. Absolutely. So you've been in education about 28 years. Yeah. You're now working at uh, Torrance Valley, yes. uh, which is a Christian school in Adelaide. Yes. Uh, you're obviously, there's something that's keeping you in education. It's not like you're really uh, frustrated and hating your job because you've stuck at yeah. it for so long. <laughs> Tell me, what are some of the things that you find find most exciting and enjoyable about working in specifically Christian education? Yeah. I think uh, the opportunity to work in a Christian school and particularly Christian school where we're encouraged to teach authentically as as Christians has been a really great way of uh, developing my faith as well because it's made me really have to um, dig a lot deeper as a Christian uh, and not just sort of um, have my faith as something that was compartmentalised into my weekends um, where, you know, in previous jobs, I always had been a Christian and um, I, this very funny moment at one of the, the job that the employment agency one day, um, we'd all got together for breakfast and um, it was very cold morning and we were, um, uh, we had like butter in those little plastic catering containers. And so while we were getting, while everyone's serving, the, like I had my butter and I'm warming it up in my hands like this, just trying to warm it up. <laughs> and the boss goes, oh, yes, oh, oh, yes, 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 Catherine, Catherine, would you like to say grace? And I went, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just warming up my butter. But anyway, so <laughs> not like people didn't know I was a Christian, but um, I think particularly at Torrens Valley, we often joke about the fact that we're like a little country school because there's so much community um, in the school where there's connections um, through church. So there's kids that I, I'm, uh, I'm teaching who I've known their parents since before their parents um, knew their children. Um, there's uh, people that I work with who are my connect group leaders at church. Um, my children go to the school uh, and so they're, they're being taught, um, or I actually teach my son, so that's a bit unique. Um, Lovely. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, um, so, so being in a, a community where we're encouraging each other in our faith as well as encouraging each other in our work is, is part of what keeps me there. Um, but I also really love being a teacher like I, I think um over time the way that I've um I suppose I seem to have sort of found this niche working with kids that don't always find school easy 
And so working with those students and their families to make schools something they can be proud of um, is something that's always really motivated me. So, Well, well done because that's something that people can find quite demotivating and quite frustrating, <laughs> working with students who are struggling. And, of course, part of the reward there is, as you said, seeing them overcome, seeing them actually have measurable educational attainment. Yep. It's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful thing to uh, nurture and care and coach a student through that process. These moments, um, they're very hard won though. <laughs> yeah. When you actually see a student overcome something, that ain't easy. And the frustrating thing can often be, and many educators will talk about this, that the student isn't pushing as hard as you are. So you're really straining and working and praying for this kid yep. and sometimes actually they're giving you some resistance. They're pushing back yep. on you themselves. Yep. So how, how would you say that your Christian worldview would equip you for those sorts of moments? I suppose it's the, there's a um, uh, well, a couple of times in the Bible where um, there's a reference to Jesus uh, being like a shepherd and um, I, you know, we, we have a, I, I do like to use analogies a lot and um I either have, I feel like I'm herding cats or trying to get an octopus in a string bag. Um, but I <laughs> often, uh, you know, you, you sort of think back to that sort of shepherding analogy of trying to get your sheep sort of, you know, into the right paddock. And um, yeah. that, that image of um, the shepherd, Jesus, um, sort of leaving the flock to get that one sheep that's sort of fallen behind. And I think um, the... So I, I feel like there's a, um, I suppose, a call from God to be looking out for those kids that um, are the stragglers. And um, I tend to find now I've got this um, uh, what uh, professional vision. I can sort of see, I, I, I watch the kids in the middle school now and I can pick the kids in the middle school that are probably going to be the kids that I'm going to be working with in the senior school um, that will um, join me in English, um, in essential English. Uh, and, you know, it's one, there's one young boy at the moment who, he you know, he's got lots on his plate and he's he, he said, well, when do I get to be in your class kind of thing? Um, nice. And, uh, <laughs> well, not too much longer, but I'm like, yep, yep, it won't be long. <laughs> um, so, so I think there's, I don't know, I feel like um, God has given me the ability to see something in um, a student that maybe they haven't seen in themselves yet and often it's also then working with their families because um well most of the time it's working with the families but it's also being able to encourage the families too because particularly you know year 10 is a bit of a um you know where the rubber will hit the road a bit for kids but um particularly in year 11 where there's really only, you know, you know, they've got two years left of school and at that point um, they're deciding generally are they going to finish school or are they going to go and sort of pursue a tertiary pathway or are they, you know, going to get a job. And um, their parents, uh, I find, you know, 
have all kinds of different things they're working through as well. And so a lot of the time it's helping the students to see hope. Um, I suppose that's that's also part of that biblical worldview, but also encouraging the parents not to give up either and for them to see hope uh, and, um, yeah, and, and I suppose the the good thing is that, you know, where in previous roles if I was meeting with a parent and a child I would be sitting there and I would be giving them this hope that had to be based on a, a secular perspective because you couldn't sort of speak about God. I can be sitting in a room with a parent and a child and there can be tears and there can be all kinds of those sorts of things but then we can pray together um, and know that we're actually doing it with God's help and that it's not just you know, the Catherine Green view of life, it's its actually God's hope sustaining them too. That's a fantastic point. And I've been in a similar situation where you're trying to console someone or you're trying to speak into a situation from a purely secular point of view, either because at that point, organisationally, it would be inappropriate to share your faith yep. or um, perhaps the people you're speaking with are hostile yep. to the faith. Yep. And as you're saying it, you're saying, what am I, what am I talking about here? What, why will it all be all right in the end? Or why am I sure that it will work itself out? It's, it's like you've got these great big promises, but they're not tethered to anything. Yep. They're just floating uh, in midair. And, of course, as you're saying it, you're going, I tell you, I wouldn't be buying this. Yep. But you're absolutely right. Some of the best, I mean, we get our curriculum sorted out with Worldview mm-hmm. and um, we do a lot of training there, but some of the best times for worldview thinking and worldview application as Christians is when things are hitting the skids. Mm-hmm. It's when it's all going sideways, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And that's when we can do so much heavy lifting in a in a real and properly authentic way. Yeah. Um, you know, it's actually anchored to the nature of God. It's not floating freely in the air. Yes. Um, it's it's real, it's concrete, and it's very, very useful. I'm so excited to hear you're getting parents involved as well, Catherine. Often that's a last resort for some teachers, yep. they think, you know, if all else fails, then maybe I'll organise a parent-teacher <laughs> interview. Yep. If there was a teacher out there who was really quite hesitant to ever get in touch with parents, what would you say to them? How would you encourage them down that path? Um, I would encourage them to remember that parents are people too and that the scary ones are often scary because they're scared and that they they have invested a lot to put their children into school uh, they they've probably you know um, had arguments in the car <laughs> on the way to school uh, they might even have been like me sometimes and doing their child's hair in the car park when they get to school um, <laughs> but um, I think there's um, that sense that in our school, we, we talk about working in partnership um, with families and not every interaction with with parents um, is without um, some type of conf- conflict. But I think the sooner you can connect with a parent and show them that you are um, walking alongside them with their children, the more effective it will be for their whole family and that in in an ideal world that first contact comes from a good reason to call <laughs> or a mm. or an email that goes home oh you would have loved seeing what 
you know, so-and-so did today or this was a great moment or whatever. And so building that connection. Um, and um, I think too, I've had a revelation many times um, working with parents that um, often their experience of school was not ideal and mm. so they will come and you can see them they come to parent teacher interviews you know that we have ours in the hall and they're all sitting around waiting and you can see them shifting in their seat because they've probably taken back to their own experience of school life where they were the kid and their parents were hearing about them at school or um you know I've I've, I've met with parents who've said oh you know, and it was a proactive conversation to sort of say, hey, how do we get around your child to lead them to some success? And they'd come in all sort of, you know, fired up as if something was wrong. And and they said, oh, we're just used to, you know, school's only contacting us when something's gone wrong. And I said, oh, no. Mm. Well, <laughs> um, so I think I, I would just encourage teachers to um, to, to re- reach out to parents and to find ways of showing them that you're working with them. Um, and as a parent as well, you know, we, we love hearing the good things about our kids. Obviously, we don't love hearing when our kids are struggling, but if it can be framed in a way that um, this is what I've noticed, this is what I think we can do to make it better as opposed to, you know, here's a problem you know, what are you going to do about a parent? Uh, maybe more a case of this is how we can work together on it. So, I love that. And, I mean, most of our schools are built around this core doctrine, this core teaching of partnership. Yeah. But as with any teaching or any doctrine, it's got to have legs. It's got to actually move us to action. And that's a really helpful practical way, Catherine, that we can make sure that we're living out what we're talking about when we're talking about partnership. Mm. Now, You've actually written in this month's, uh, well, next month's Christian Teachers Journal in the May edition, you've done a book review. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've reviewed a book entitled Loving Our Students on Purpose. So it's by Bernie Godwin and Danny Silk. I've got a really tough question for you here, Catherine. And if you were one of my students, you'd say, Mr. Matthews, this is unfair. These questions are too hard. (laughs) But here's a question. Out from that book, could you put it in a nutshell? For us, could you perhaps give us a really brief summary of the core message of sure. the book? Um, well, I'm going to – is it all right to cheat? Well, I mean, <laughs> you're not actually one of my students, so you can do as you please. Well, no, I'm not cheating. I'm not cheating because I'm telling you that this is coming from the back cover of the book. But um, this is <laughs> – um, I came across this book at a time where I really needed to be reminded of the good – things about being a teacher and uh, this uh, little synopsis on the back was part of what attracted me to not just buy the book but actually read the whole book um, which mm. that in itself is is uh, a wonderful thing because I buy a lot but I don't always read them. So it says here, um, imagine a school where students, parents, teachers and leaders joyfully take responsibility for their own choices, behaviour and learning because they have mastered connection. Through the lens of applied neuroscience, loving our students on purpose will empower you with the tools to shift from the weariness of reactive behaviour management to purposeful behaviour education, which will result in teachers enjoying teaching and students enjoying learning. So that's... Well, that's a great, that's a great little nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't have written and it better I, myself. <laughs> well, I'm sure. I'm sure. It, it was quite well phrased. It's funny that that would actually work quite well for you, given your psychological background. I, um, my undergraduate degree was in psychology 
And people don't realize that you think it's going to be like diagnosing people yeah. and looking at all these crazy things. It's mostly statistics yep. and then it's it's mostly, you know, um, putting a, some sort of thing on this part of the brain yep. and seeing what it does. And so it's, it's a lot of um, sort of neuroscience. Yes. And a lot of statistics. Yes. So it sounds like Bernie Godwin has got her head pretty well wrapped around that sort of stuff, yes. yeah. which is really it's really useful. We are entering a space in education where we are wanting to be able to support what we do with data yes. and with statistics. That's going to be probably the next 10 years, a big theme for the next 10 yep. years is, is, is data-informed practice. So what you're saying is in this book, it's not just a bunch of good ideas from someone who's worked in the education space, but there's actually plenty of research and data yep. as a foundation for these ideas. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, she's she's co-written the book with um, Danny Silk and um, he's sort of been a mentor of hers um, uh, for a number of years, but she's sort of taken um, experiences of her own. So she's not a teacher, but she's uh, worked in schools um in their sort of well-being, um, social work sort of uh, areas, um, and she's got you know lots of qualifications in sort of social work and um, neuropsychotherapy, which um, word doesn't like to uh, thinks that's a spelling error, but yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> um, and so she sort of um, the book spends there's at least three chapters that are. Um, really sort of setting that foundation of the neuroscience behind connection and how we've been created and the way that our our brains and bodies have been designed to um, work together in the way that we process the world around us and how um, I think, well, as a, as a teacher, um, my own brain and body is reacting to the brains and bodies of my students in my classroom and um, you know I take with me into the classroom the interactions that I've had in the staff room or the you know the, the conversations I've had as I'm walking across the yard and how actually being able to recognize what our brains and our bodies are doing in those circumstances but also being able to acknowledge the multiple things that are impacting the brains and bodies of our students and how sometimes they can clash and collide in a really um, negative way that turns into um, conflict in the classroom. But if we are using that understanding of neuroscience to build connection with our students, that there's uh, um, a classroom culture and school culture that's built around connection rather than around compliance and fear. Um, so... That's fantastic. And I think some people can get quite wary of psychology or neuroscience. Psychology is interesting because within it, there are different schools of thought. It's like anything. Yep. Neuroscience is similar, but also quite different because there's just an anatomical element. Mm. We, we want to understand more about the brain. And it's actually for the Christian, it's never going to be a bad thing having a better conception of what God has created. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. So yeah. we don't we don't need to be fearful when we hear big words like neuroscience or psychology or these sorts of things because it's actually understanding who God has made us to be and how God yeah. has made us work. Ignorance is not going to be better um, than um, information in those sorts of cases. Well, and I think too when you get, like 
um, having had a few years since I studied psychology, getting back into like having to think about all of the different parts of um, our nervous system and our brain and all the anatomical stuff. There's there's lots of big words and that can be really off-putting. And I think the way that um, it's it sort of you're taken through stages in the book to sort of understand that. But I just find it to 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 read this with a biblical worldview and understand that God has designed us this way, the intricacy of some of the things in our brains and the way they interact with our bodies and come out in our behaviour is just phenomenal. And um, to actually, you know, if we think about the fact that, you know, if we see ourselves as being made in the image of God, our students are being made in the image of God, and, you know, look, I, I had a situation only just the other day where I know that my um, my brain was 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 going through this flight or fight kind of um, process. How was I going to react in this situation? Because I was thrown into something in front of my students where I really wanted to act one way, <laughs> maybe a bit like a toddler, um, but I knew that I was the professional <laughs> in the room. So I had to sort of really consciously think, okay, now this is how you do it, blah, blah, blah. and recognising that in our school where regardless of what age of student we're working with, we're working with developing brains and the behaviour that sometimes we will apply consequences to in our classroom is really just a developing brain trying to work out how to process what's happening around them. And if we can recognise that in ourselves as much as in our students, I think it takes pressure off everybody that's in the classroom. <laughs> um, so... There's a fantastic educator out there, a fellow called Tom Bennett. He works out of the UK and he's big in this behavior space. And in reading his book called Running the Room, he makes a fascinating point. He effectively says that it's a basic psychological bias that all adults can have. We assume other people will be quite proficient in the things that we're really good at ourselves. Yeah. So if I'm if I'm an A-grade golfer, I'm just going to be like, yeah, well, you just you just pull the club back and you swing it and you just the ball sort of goes where you want it to. Yep. You know, we assume that it will be easier for other people because we're good at ourselves. Of course, the same thing is true for behaviour. You know, if we're teaching in a school, we've done a degree or two, we've managed to navigate the relational complexities of the staff room and even just the interview and getting the job. We obviously have a level of EQ that allows us to navigate complex social situations. Because by and large, we're quite good at that as teachers, we can really set the bar too high for students. Mm. And so actually understanding where students are coming from, the sort of difficulties they face, and understanding that uh, we may well in some cases actually have to adjust our expectations. That's mm. really, uh, well, that's a big part of connecting well with your students. And that mm. seems to be the main thrust of this book. Um, yep. is, is that right, Catherine? So yeah. you've got on one hand disconnection and on the other hand what we're aiming yep. for is connection. Yeah, and I suppose um, Bernie and Danny have sort of written this very much from the idea that, um, you know, a traditional schooling system tends to work um, where there's a lot of um, a sense that the teacher has to have control of their classroom, that the students have to have control of their own behaviour 
and that whenever a student doesn't have control of their own behaviour, then it's the teacher's job to take control and apply whatever consequences or punishment is necessary in order for the students to learn that that wasn't the best um, choice. And that uh, if the student is motivated to behave for the teacher because they are fearful that the teacher's going to get angry or they're fearful that they're going to, you know, get a detention and mum and dad are going to find out or any of those sorts of things, then the student is not actually, their brain is not primed for learning because they're so stressed um, about doing something wrong that they're, um, the part of their brain that enables them to think can't actually take over because the emotional part of their brain is still sort of managing their survival. So um, being able to recognise that if if we're actually building a, a school culture or a classroom culture that's built on connection where students come into the classroom and they feel safe and they know what to expect from the teacher's behaviour and that they know that, you know, if they cross the line that there's going to be a consequence but it's not going to be a consequence where they're going to be shamed or a consequence where their sense of self-worth is going to be brought into question, um, then that student is more likely to um, be ready for learning because their, their, their brain has a chance to focus on learning and not just surviving. Um, but also then the way that they will interact with um, the, the school or the teachers and the staff at the school will be um, based on that sort of the, that connection as opposed to just being fearful, oh, here comes so-and-so, oh, here comes so-and-so. You know, that's... The Christian Education Podcast is brought to you by Teaching in Tassie. At Christian Education National Schools in Tassie, you can make a difference. You have the freedom to express your faith and values, of course, with Jesus right at the centre. Tasmania's beautiful environment has space to breathe. We have amazing food and wine, wilderness to explore. There's an adventure right on your doorstep. There are endless opportunities. I've got to tell you, it's almost perfect. To sign up or learn more, visit teachingintassie.com.au and you'll be the first to know when there's a career available. Who knows? It may just have your name on it. Let's get back to the discussion. Absolutely. And I think I, re- I really like the idea that the book is called Loving Our Students on Purpose because as Christians, isn't that just the ball game for us? I mean, yeah. if we think in Matthew 22, when Jesus is talking about the two great commandments, it's, it's love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love our neighbor. Yeah. So love is really the spine of the whole Christian religion, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And it's really important that we get that through. There's a great essay out there. If people want to read it, I think you can Google it. It's called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teachers. It's by a pastor and an educator called Douglas Wilson. And this is what he argues. He says, the highly effective teacher will love God, they'll love life, they'll love the students, and they'll love the subject. Yep. So actually, love is our core business. Yep. We're loving God, we're loving our lives, we're loving our students, and we're loving our subjects. And Students can actually tell when we do that. That's probably um, one of the foundational truths of education. Sometimes kids will have a hard time picking up what we're trying to teach them, 
but there'll be a lot that we're doing that's teaching them in other ways that they're actually really good at picking up. If they can tell uh, that Mr. Matthews or Mrs. Green, when they come in the classroom, they're actually pretty frustrated and tired and not really ready for uh, the classroom, you know, they'd rather be somewhere else. Yeah. Boy, they'll pick up on that in a heartbeat. Yeah. And and that's where we as educators, if we have love, uh, not only as the background of our uh, sort of private religious experience but well integrated into everything we do if we're Mm. if we're loving god and loving others all the time we really do stand to gain and our students stand to gain yes so in this book in this book then loving our students on purpose what are some of the really practical steps that we can take to implement these ideas within our school communities sure so um there's this uh sort of understanding um part of the section of the book where uh, the authors are talking about um, the neuroscience, that they talk about this concept of the safety stool uh, and the safety stool being um, a three-legged stool um, where it takes into consideration the fact that um, I suppose our sense of self is like the seat of the stool um, and the three-legged stool is um, our ability to control um, what's going on around us. Um, there's also our the third, second leg is sort of this sort of um, pain pleasure detector, you know, is what I'm doing now painful or is it is it, you know, giving me pleasure? And then the, the one is the third one is attachment. And that the stool sort of rests on this foundation of our genetics and our environment. And that uh, obviously, we can't control the genetics of our students. Uh, we do have some um, influence over the environment for our students, uh, but also recognising that if any of those other elements of the stool, so any of those other three legs, which I didn't describe very well, mind you, um, are wobbly, or if some aspect of the environment is wobbly, then that's going to sort of set the student off, off course. And so it talks a lot about um, making sure that we're doing what we can to meet the basic needs of our students, so showing them that they are valued, um, that they are loved, and and if we know pastorally that there are things going on, um, we can't go back and change the genetics, but we can, you know, there might be things that we can do to make sure, you know, have you eaten breakfast today? Uh, (laughs) You know, those sorts of um, those sorts of elements where the basic needs for the child are being met. Uh, but then there's a, a lot of strategies too around how to um, build students' uh, opportunity to think responsibly. So there's a whole lot of um, particular tools um, in the book, in the latter part of the book, which talks about um, responsible thinking processes. So this is a um, not something that's uh, just uh, from Bernie and, and Danny, but um, it's used in a lot of different schools. But it's about um, natural consequences for um, behaviour choices that aren't ideal, I suppose. And so uh, making sure that students have uh, a space uh, and the opportunity to think about uh, where maybe they've broken connection with the teacher. So, um we had a teacher at our school recently who really talked to our, a group of students about wearing uniform and how, you know, none of us as teachers love spending our day talking to kids about not wearing their uniform, but um, that we want to give students the opportunity to take responsibility for wearing their uniform and recognise that if, that, that, that obviously 
any time where they don't wear their uniform, that's almost breaking that sort of um, connection with with the, with the teacher that, well, I'm not going to follow your rules, so I'm going to show you that I'm disrespecting your rules. And so that's where the connection's broken. So it should not then be a surprise then to that student if they've made that choice that there would be a natural consequence in order for that connection to be restored and that that would mean, you know, whatever the, um, the process is for the uniform. So, um, but it's also, um, I believe, uh, Bernie particularly has had experience working in schools where the whole school has taken on this responsible thinking um, process uh, so that it's not just about a teacher in the classroom managing their own classroom, but that there are places in the school where, where kids who need to um, spend some time regulating their behaviour can actually go to a safe place um, and have a chance to, you know, regulate but also then have someone with them who's skilled in these responsible thinking processes to help them think about okay well well why do you think your teacher was a bit cross today when you threw that you know paper ball across the room or you know uh why do you think it frustrates your teacher if you rock up every lesson and your laptop's not charged and um so rather than just the teacher having to always manage the behavior and the um initial impact that child that student's choice is making in the classroom the child or the student is given the opportunity to go and talk about it somewhere with someone else who's skilled in that as well so there's a it's sort of like a process or a strategy for schools that they can implement um, on the basis of, of some of the things in this book as well so there's there's the the neuroscience part but then there's also the strategy and the tools um, that can be used as well so well, that's really good. It's, a, in fact, a ringing endorsement. Say, as we close, Catherine, say there's a teacher out there who's saying, well, look, I've seen these books come and go. They're a dime a dozen. I'm not that interested in learning anything new in this space. What would you say to an educator like that who is perhaps wary of another book or another model? What would be your pitch as to why this book is actually going to benefit them, their students and their community? Uh, well, I think, well, for me, it's one of the few books that I've actually finished um, and I'm going back and rereading for the second time. Um, so I buy lots of books and get about three chapters in and then there. Uh, but I yeah. found because there was a lot of honesty in this book um, from the authors about their own experiences of working in schools and working with young people and families that they weren't just somebody who was telling me the research, they were actually talking about it from their own experience. And I think because of um, the place that I was in personally at the time and and just needing to sort of um, be reconnected myself to the joy of being a teacher, um, to actually read stories in here that reminded me that um, there was hope um, was what motivated me to finish the book. I, it, I sort of became ravenous, I suppose, <laughs> to get to the end because I just I thought, you know, I could just see where it was going. Um, and so, yeah, I think it it you could t- you could read the entirety of the book. You could read chapter six, which is just you know about being a powerful teacher. You could read the cu- the couple of chapters on neuroscience, and even if you didn't finish the whole thing, you'd get something valuable just out of those chapters. So. Well, that indeed is a ringing endorsement, Catherine Green. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really interesting to hear your perspective on this book, Loving Our Students on Purpose. 
And I hope that it's something that will change communities for the better amongst Christian schools and and, uh, independent and public schools alike. I wish you all the best on your holidays. Thank you. And I wish you God's richest blessing for the rest of the year. Thanks very much, Paul.